This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That very lucky to be joined on Football CFB by a fellow Scott who has a very interesting background in football. He's currently the Director of Scouting at Columbus Crew, a side that have just won their MLS conference and, crucially, they've won the MLS Cup, which if you follow um, soccer, as they call it, I suppose, in, in the US, it is the trophy to win. Neil McGuinness, thank you so much for joining me. First of all, how are you? I'm very good, Callum. Thank you very much for uh, having me on the show. Um, it's one that I listen to all the time. I'm a, I'm a really big fan of the show. Uh, I think you get some cracking guests on here and it's always interesting content. It's not just your generic stuff. So um, usually when I'm in the car on a long journey or I'm on a plane, I usually stick on one of your, your podcasts. So it's great to actually be on here and, and have a chat with you. No, I really appreciate that. And and in terms of yourself, we're, we're going to go through your, your career to where you are now. Director of Scouting at Columbus Crew, but you've also previously worked at Celtic. You've worked in Qatar, as we'll come to as well. It's been an interesting journey. And because, as I said in the intro, you're a fellow Scot, I feel a wee bit invested in that journey because I like seeing fellow Scots do well abroad in whatever field they're in. That role, Director of Scouting, what does that involve on a, a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so um, just just to touch firstly on your point about, about Scots Abroad, I'm with you as well on that. Like, I, I don't find that many um, fellow Scots when you kind of travel outside of the UK. It's, there's not many around. So when I do come across um, guys working outside the field, it's, it's great to have a chat with them and, and kind of find out how they got into that position as well because usually people are within Scotland or, or the UK in general. Um, going back to the role itself, so it's kind of all-encompassing. Um, we uh, we obviously have an in-house scouting department um, which covers everything within the club from a, a recruitment point of view, both internally and externally. Uh, we have staff members. Um, we also have, obviously, the full coaching staff that are involved very closely on with, with what we do. We have a technical director. We have a club president. So we actually have quite a big staff um, in comparison to what a lot of other clubs have, especially in Europe. So... Um, I mean, in terms of day to day, we're working. We're working every day towards enhancing the team. So, it all starts from the coach down. Um, what the coach is looking for is there areas that he feels he can strengthen. Is there areas that um, he feels we're 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 good at, but we could be better. Um, we're always basically working hand in hand um, as a group, and that's one of the great things about this club is everybody is going in the same direction. And it's if you don't have that in a club, it can very quickly go the wrong way. Um, so. Obviously, we're, we're forever watching games, players, agent meetings, watching games live before COVID. But even now, we're trying to, to keep that going. Working with the coach on a daily basis, attending training sessions, having meetings, um, both virtually and uh, in person. I mean, it's a, it's a 24-7 job. And when I'm not there, I'll be on the phone. I'll be in the car on the phone. I'll be at home taking phone calls. There's obviously time delays. Um, if I'm dealing with people in Europe, there's usually a five, six hour time difference. So you're having to schedule your day based on that I'm waking up first thing in the morning to a ton of messages and calls that I need to get back to that have come during the night and then later on in the evening you're dealing with folk that are on the same time scale you're dealing with South America 
at times you're dealing with the, um, the Middle East and also places like China and Japan. And it, it all just basically leads towards a 24-7 workload. Um, so, I mean, it's hard to break it down to day-to-day because there's so much going on, but it's all very similar things just at different times of the day. In terms of the club itself, you're at a club in Columbus Crew that have had quite the history in, in recent times. There was the Save the Crew campaign a few years ago and, and things have really changed since the days where there was a worry that the club might not exist in the same state that it was in historically. Since then, new ownerships come into the club. There's plans very much in place for a new stadium. And, and I also mentioned in the intro, success in not only winning your league, your conference as they call it, but winning the MLS Cup this season as well. Just talk me through that journey because from the outside looking in, it is nothing short of remarkable. I um, I actually joined the club uh, while it was right at the crux of that point. So, I mean, I, I was learning about it as I was, I was obviously studying the club and had been there. And um, it was right at that point that it was, it was kind of touch and go. Um, obviously, there was a massive movement that had been started by the fans and people living in the community to, to save the team and keep the team in Columbus. Um, which was was a remarkable story because the effort that they put in and, and how professional they were with the whole thing, um, it was a real it was a real planned kind of strategy to to save the team, um, and what they did was was brilliant. They got people noticing what was going on, they got media exposure, uh, and they really started to bring it to the forefront. It was all over the internet, it was all over Twitter. Um, they were very active in the community. And in the end, they managed to get, um, whether it was directly or, or, or from from the new ownership, hearing the story and looking into it, they, they managed to get a new ownership group to buy the club. Um, and the rest is history. They bought the club. The original owner moved his team down to Austin, um, where they're launching their own team, and, and Columbus stayed where it, where it should be. And obviously, uh, as you can see, everything that's happened in, in the space since that, uh, and the new ownership group has just been been tremendous. So um, all credit to everybody that was involved in that. It's a remarkable story, and I'm sure that's one that eventually somebody will do a documentary or, or some kind of mini film about because it's it's definitely something that's uh, it's not often you see that happening in football. You don't often see clubs being saved. A lot of clubs, when they get in this position, they end up going to the wall or or basically having to change names, relocate, whatever it may be. But but what they achieved in Columbus was sensational. It was sensational, and to, to fast forward to to the current success, the MLS Cup is the the, the massive um, trophy, and and in the MLS to get to the final of that takes takes a lot of effort. You have to win your conference, of course. How just sum up the season from from your perspective? Because again, from the outside looking in, I imagine winning the conference is a hell of a lot of effort. Never mind having to to win the sort of playoff format that the MLS Cup comes with. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's one thing that maybe people over in, over in Europe and other countries don't appreciate is, is just how big the states are. Um, so when you're playing an away game, you're talking flights, you're talking, you're having to go into the into the, the visiting city a day before. And listen, people don't realise just, just how much that takes out of a player. You're having to constantly be prepared to travel, fly, be in hotels, play games, quick turnaround and back out. And that alone... Physically, mentally, a lot of that's taxing. So there's a lot more involved on the travel side um, playing in MLS than there is in, in European leagues. I mean, if you're playing in England, for example, the furthest you're going is a bus ride. Um, very, Or maybe you'll get on a train, but you're not going for a long period of time. 
it's a totally different ball game when you're actually physically getting on planes, off planes, through security, customs, all of this stuff, um, just to go and play games. But to just kind of rewind to the start of the season, um, I mean, listen, we we obviously uh, started the same as everyone else. We had our pre-season, which went really well. The boys looked sharp. They came out great. We started the season really well. We beat New York in the opening game. And then bang, COVID hits. And it just derails everyone. Um, but credit to the coaching staff and the players. They knuckled down. They didn't let that affect them. The training was great. They stayed organised. They stayed on top of everything. And the team just stayed as a real solid unit. And then obviously the league games start to slowly come back, um, albeit with no fans and, and spread out at different times. But the Orlando tournament was was in between just after the, the COVID period had hit. And the reason behind that was to try and get the guys playing in a controlled environment. So they had a bubble down there in Orlando where it was only for the staff and the players. Um, and they were obviously able to manage that a lot better than if they had a, an open market game. And we did very well down there. We started great. We won our group. Um, in the end, we, we we lost to Minnesota, I believe. But I think the big thing for us going down to that um, MLS's back tournament in Orlando was you got league points from the group stages and we won all of our group matches. So to come away with, with maximum points, that's all that mattered to us, really. Um, obviously, you, you can win the tournament, but it doesn't affect you in the overall league standing. So it was great to get those points. Um, and then obviously you're back into the league and, and it was a long, long slog. Lots of games, um, back to back. Uh, but I thought the boys did just unbelievably, unbelievably well to deal with all of that, to deal with everything that comes with playing in front of no fans, to um, having to stay motivated, to the training level not dropping. Everything was just, it was done as professionally as it could have been. Um, and I think in the end, the, the credit has to go to the coaching staff and the players for just how hard they worked on it. They never gave up. Even when there was setbacks, players picking up COVID, injuries to, to players. They never stopped. They just kept going. And every time someone was injured and a new player came in, they performed to a standard that kept the team where it should be. So um, to get that far and then, like you say, to, to win the Eastern Conference, huge. But what I really liked that night, um, I mean, it was a great night we won and, and it was a good atmosphere. But I remember being in and around the, the changing rooms after and thinking, they celebrated, yeah, but they didn't overly celebrate, which told me that there's an eye on the bigger prize here. And I thought that was great. Um, the focus didn't drop. They didn't think, listen, we've won the Eastern, we've achieved everything. We're still going here. Um, and that's how you get to a championship level when players know that the job's not done. Uh, and I think that was, it's just, again, testament to the boys and the coaching staff. Brilliant, brilliant effort from, from all involved. And then you obviously saw the culmination in the final, which... I thought it was just one outstanding push from everyone. I thought every player played as well as they possibly could. They put everything into the game. And in the end, it was a very, very convincing win, which probably should have been more. Um, looking back at the tape, you, you probably could say we could have scored four or five maybe on the night. So um, overall, just a tremendous, tremendous outcome to a, a very peculiar year. An incredible outcome at the end of, of a tasking year for, for everyone in football and, and within society. For that group of players and the group of staff, you mentioned the fact that you went down to Orlando, you were in the bubble for the MLS's back tournament. To, to fast forward, obviously, as we have done, to, to winning the, the MLS Cup, on the night that the Cup was sealed, just describe your emotions and the team's emotions because it must have been just... Winning any trophy is incredible, but given the year that everyone's had, it must have been extra special. You know, it's one of those... I would say I was most... Um, not nervous, but to a point where 
you're not as engaged in what's going on around you when it's a final. So, I mean, in the build-up games, you know you're trying to get to that prize. So you're trying to, your emotions are heightened because every decision makes a, a, a step towards where you're trying to get to. So I was a lot more nervous in those games. But come the final, it's almost like you just tune everything out and you're just so engaged in the game. You're so focused on what's happening on the pitch that everything around you is just quiet. Um, and I remember thinking when we got the first goal, it wasn't against the run of play. You're looking at it going, I tell you what, we, we're, we're really giving them a lesson here. That, that's how we came out early. And I thought their passing, the movement, the individual performances of the key players that you needed on the night were there. Um, so that when the first goal goes in, you start thinking, right, OK, they're going to come back at us. And then you get the second and you think, if we get a third tier, this game's, this game's dead. So you go in and then second half, you come out and, and they come at you. And to be fair, that's a very good team, Seattle. They've got some top, top players there. Um, and they've got players that more than likely will end up in Europe, I would say, in the coming, coming transfer windows. Some really good players. But you just look at it and you think, we could probably nick another one here. And there's little chances happening. And they're getting, they're getting a few chances, but you never think, listen, they've really got a chance to score here. And then as the game develops and we get the third, then that's when you start to realise we've actually done it, we've won it. Um, so when the whistle blew, I think that's when the emotion comes. Uh, I remember walking around the pitch after it and, and just kind of taking a few moments to just kind of stare at the crowd and, and just look around at how everybody was, was taking in the moment and just thinking... Wow, <laughs> what a year, you know, what a year. And then obviously you've got the celebrations afterwards and the changing rooms and they're brilliant. Everybody's just, that's when people let loose. That's when people can, you can see the the stress levels just disappear and they're happy and it's just all about having fun. Um, the coaching staff, everybody was just having a great night. Uh, and I, I, I live long, long in the memory because I think a year like this, to end it the way we did, um, that's added pressure, that's added stress that usually you don't have when it's a normal season. Um, it's not been a normal year for anyone, let alone in football. So uh, it was just, uh, yeah, it was it was a full release of uh, release of emotion at the end of it. But brilliant. It's, I mean, it's still still to this day. We're a few, a few weeks on from it now. Um, that feeling doesn't go away and it just makes you want it more. And I think we've got a group here that is hungry to get more. Uh, with a new stadium coming next season, new training ground, everything is still progressing the way we want it to. So really looking forward to what's coming. Absolutely. The future is, is certainly bright and I, and I wish you and everyone at the club all the best uh, with that. But to rewind, if, if I may, you've been involved in, in scouting and opposition analysis within your career so far. And, and the, the big question that I'm desperate to ask is, you know as well as I do in the modern world you've got an array of technology and lots of platforms are out there where you can watch a player in any country in the world from the comfort of your own home or the training ground or the stadium or wherever you are how important is it to watch a player you're tracking with your own eye as well as using data that's in front of you as well nowadays it's exactly like you just said there Callum the, the amount of information that's at your fingertips is just unbelievable. Um, whether you want it, it's being portrayed to you from various outlets. Uh, and if you do want to go and search for it, there's nothing you can't find. And that's no different in football. Um, the amount of data software packages that are available, tracking uh, analysis software, um, data packs on players when they're training to show you the output, uh, drones filming training. It's just 24-7 now. Um, so it has become a massive, massive part of football. I would say it's hand-in-hand hand now. Um, live scouting and, and data scouting, they're very, very intertwined now. Um, 
you can find out everything you want from a statistical point of view on players. Um, the data packages that are available go so in-depth and in detail that you can analyse a player's game solely on video to cut down everything you may want. Um, if it's headers you want to watch, if it's crosses, if it's passing, you can watch all that with your eyes, but you can also have the statistical data that backs up how many successful passes, how many overlaps, how many... Um, down to expected goals, expected assists, all of this stuff that's everywhere nowadays. So it's it's a massive, massive part of what we do day in, day out nowadays. But again, there is that massive part that's the human element. And for me, they, they do go hand in hand. Um, I think final decisions will always come down to the human eye. You have to be able to go and see the boy play yourself. You have to be able to meet them. You have to be able to talk to them, find out what their personality is like. Because a lot of things data won't show you. Um, it's not going to show you their personality. It's not going to show you how they interact with teammates. It's not going to tell you a lot of the human side of the game. Um, so you really do have to to blend it, blend it together. And in the final decisions, you're, you're putting everything together. So you've got the data side to back up what you're saying. You've also got your own written reports. You've also got your own background checks. You've also spoken to coaches, ex-teammates. You've, you've built a picture of who the human being is as well as what they're doing on the pitch. Um, and it's very important you do that because there can be a lot of players that have things going on off the pitch or certain certain areas within their own personal life that may not fit your club. So I think it's superbly important to, to do both sides of it. Um, but when it comes down to the final decision, the final signing point, it, it would have to be backed up from having seen the boy live and having met him. That's a fascinating insight. And and it's it's in terms of scouting and, and, and recruitment, when were you first interested in that? And and when you, you gathered their interest in that, was there particular leagues that you prioritised in, in terms of watching players, maybe gathering data and also gathering experience through the human element, as, as you've mentioned? You know, it's funny because I, I often think back to try and pinpoint in my own mind when when did I really get into football um, and it, listen it was from a young age I was always out kicking a ball and and you have your friends and stuff and, and I remember even being taken to to games when I was young but not really understanding it but the time that I, I remember it vividly um, 1989 <laughs> god that's going back the FIFA under 16 world championships they were held at Hamden um, and I remember going to it and Scotland were obviously taking part and the games were all over the place. Um, they were being played at different grounds, but Hamden had the final and I was at the final. Um, and I just remember the whole experience. I remember it was the first time I'd been to one of the, the food vans outside. And I can still to this day kind of remember what it was like to get that hot dog and the smell. And, and it, it sounds nostalgic and daft, but these things stick in your memory. Um, and I remember going in and Scotland were in the final. They were playing against Saudi Arabia. Um, and, and even then, looking back at the players that were playing there, Paul Dickov was in that team. Brian O'Neill, Andy McLaren. I mean, these guys at the time uh, were, 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 didn't mean anything to me. But then you see, obviously, what they went on to, do, to achieve in their career. But it was a great crop of players. And I remember watching the final thinking, this is such an, a, a unique atmosphere. The place was packed. Scotland were in the final, which was unheard of, albeit at under-16 level. Um, but the strange part of the day is they lost the final to Saudi Arabia, um, which considering when you when you look at it on paper, Scotland v Saudi Arabia, it should have been a no-brainer. Um, now, things over the years have, have come to light that, that Saudi did not field a, a team of eligible players. Um, the majority of their guys were probably 23, 24. I remember looking at the team photos years later and half the Saudi team had beards. I'm thinking, that's interesting for a 16-year-old. Um, but uh, also, 
later in my career I ended up working in Qatar and I worked with a guy from Saudi um, who remembered the game and, and he used to laugh about it he was like I can't believe we we got away with that and how they still had the trophy over there in Saudi and it was just hilarious going back over it but that was my kind of first real tournament memories because in that tournament I mean some of the squads that I saw it was alien to me I'm seeing Nigeria I'm seeing USA Argentina Ghana Portugal and you look at the players they had Portugal had Luis Figo Abel Xavier the coach was Carlos Quiroz Argentina were there with top players. The USA had guys like Claudio Reyna. So when you look back, I was seeing top-level football players but not understanding it. Um, so it was, it's just brilliant when you look back in your memories uh, to think, when was it? When did I first get hooked? And, and that tournament, to be honest, was what hooked me. You, you, you mentioned the fact that you get hooked at that moment. A, a, a fair few years later, you go on to, to work at Celtic. Um, what was your role exactly in and around the club at that time? So at Celtic, when I joined, um, Tony Mowbray was the coach, um, but it was right at the tail end. So Tony Tony was on his way out. Um, things obviously hadn't worked out. Um, and then Neil Lennon was coming in to replace him. So my role there, um, I was working for the first team uh, as a first team scout and also opposition analysis. So what I would do, um, it would be a mixture of, of both 50-50. Um, I would also take on a lot of the kind of internal stuff, um, building of the databases, kind of dealing with incoming stuff from agents and things like that. But um, to just go through the various sections, so opposition analysis would be a, a case of heading out to see who we were due to play in the coming weeks and write a report on them for the coaching staff. So whether it was Dundee United, I'd head down there. I'd watch United, I'd write maybe a... 13, 14 page report on how they play, um, how they shaped up their key men, how they were at corners, how they were corners for, against, what their overall um, tactical formation was, their shape, in possession, out of possession. And you would basically just analyse everything about the team on the day. Um, you'd go through all their individual players, you'd write comments on who they had, how they played, what their weaknesses were, what their strengths were. Um, and then you would present that when you came back in on the Monday, you'd, you'd give that to the, the coaching staff and they'd have a look through it. Also backed up by what the analyst, um, the analysis department were doing. They would be providing the video to back up the written report um, and they would look through everything that they needed to on the upcoming opponent. And obviously the coaching staff um, would know a lot about the teams because in Scotland, you're regularly playing the same teams. There's one or two yo-yo up and down, but it's usually the same team season on season. So, there's not a lot of new players coming in and out of the league um, that would have been a shock at that time. So, I mean, that that part of it I found fascinating. I loved that. I loved getting into the, the guts of it and, and looking at exactly how the teams ticked. Um, there's also the, the recruitment side of it. Now, that comes down to what is the coach looking for? So, we would have regular recruitment meetings where the coach at the time, um, Neil Lennon, his coaching staff, would say, listen, I feel we can improve in this area, that area. What do we have? What's in the market? Um, now, you're working directly with the budgets, so you know what you can and you can't spend. You're then going out into the marketplace to see what's available. Is there loan deals that might suit us? Is there transfers? Are there free transfers? Are there guys we can get out on a, a loan with an option? Various different um, aspects of, of how you would you would recruit, but the end result was always to improve the team. So whatever the coach was looking for, and he would give you the specifics. So you'd go into detail on what he wanted. If, for example, it was a right back, what type of right back was it? Was it a more defensive minded or was it more of an offensive? Is it a guy that overlapped? Is it a guy that liked to, to keep possession with the team and he was available for, for um, just kind of possession based system play? It just depended on what he was looking for. And then you would build out of that and then, Obviously, it's a long, long process. You're then presenting options to them as it goes on. Um, so that was that was another main aspect. Then you're also dealing internally with with everything. So you have to manage the internal databases. 
you're keeping an eye on what the club's already looked at, what you're looking at, making sure it's all documented, making sure there's a central location that everybody can dip into so that they can see what we have on file. We had various software packages where we would keep reports. Um, we had databases that were both manual and software-based. So there's a lot goes into the process, um, but it all starts from what the coach is looking for at the initial point. You mentioned what the coach is looking for, but I imagine at times during your journey in recruitment and scouting that you, that you spot some incredible talents that maybe change everything. Two players I want to mention to you in particular, Virgil van Dijk, who's went on to be a, a, a Champions League winner and, and one of the best centre-backs in world football. I don't think anyone listening will, will dispute that. And also Stefan Johansson, another player I want to mention to you. Um, he came up to Scotland, won Player of the Year, was very impressive during his time in Scotland and, and obviously moved down south and has subsequently played in the Premier League. Those two guys were signed at your time uh, at the club, involved in recruitment. See, when you watch players like that, are they players that are sort of must-haves on first view? Or were any of them growers at all, where you maybe need to do a wee bit of convincing with yourself or with staff? You know, it's funny. Um, I would say at, at the time, um, now the, these were two positions that we had been tasked with identifying. So we knew what the coach wanted and what type of profile he wanted. Um, but I would say at the time, putting the two side by side, Stefan was probably a bit ahead of where Virgil was at that point. Um, he was playing week in, week out, um, plus from squad set. And, and he was bossing games. I mean, he was the engine. He was getting forward. He was getting back. He was good on the ball. He was creating things. Um, whereas Virgil was more of a, a young kid kind of finding his feet in the first team. Um, I remember going over to watch Virgil. Um, and the, I specifically picked a game where he was playing against Vitessa away. Um, and the striker at the time for Vitesse was Wilfred Boney. Now, the reason I picked that game was because I looked at it and I said to myself, well, if he can defend against a guy like Boney, he's going to be more suited to the physical aspect of British football because you're up against a lot of big lumps um, when you're playing in Britain a lot of the time. And a lot of the teams that you play against, specifically in Scotland, if they are going to attack you, it's going to be a long ball approach. So I wanted to see how he did. Um and on first viewing, I mean, I'd watched Virgil numerous, numerous times on video. I was watching him weekly on his, his games at Groningen. But but seeing him live for the first time, the first thing I noticed was I personally felt that he could be in better shape. Um, I thought his, his bum was a little bit big, to be honest. Um, I don't think he was in perfect shape physically, but it was clear that he had all the attributes. So there was a couple of times where he would, he would let, of a test player have five yards on him because he knew he would get there and get the ball back. Um, so that instantly showed me, listen, this guy's got got very good recovery pace. He's a guy that knows he can get there if he needs to, but he needs to he needs to trim down. Um, he was still he was still a big boy, you know, but I thought physically he needed to kind of polish himself. He needed to be chiselled down a little bit. He was good in the air. Um, at the time, his hair was all over the place. And listen, you could see he was still learning who, who he was as a person, let alone a footballer. Um, but in that game, he gave Boney a good fight, you know. Boney, Boney's a big, big guy. He's got a massive back. He holds players off. He lets the ball come to feet and he pushes you off. Virgil wasn't allowing him to do that. Um, he was really getting close to him and he was giving him a difficult time. So from me, from, from that point of view, looking at him, I'm, I'm seeing all the things I want to see. So I'm seeing height. I'm seeing he's decent on the ball. I'm seeing he can compete in the air. I'm seeing that if you do get in behind him, he's got the recovery pace. Some of the tackles he made were pretty solid. He missed one or two, but when he got there, it was it was clean. So you're looking going, geez, this is this is a, a player that with the right teammates, with the right coaching, could potentially go to a much, much higher level. And I was quite shocked to find him at Groningen because I'm thinking, 
why have a PSV, a Feyenoord, an Ajax not swooped this kid up? And the more the, the later years, I find out more information that that they had they'd overlooked him. They'd signed, I think Ajax at the time signed a guy called Mike van der Hoorn, who ended up at Swansea. Um, now you can only look side by side at how their careers went, but at the time I had also looked at van der Hoorn and I'm thinking van Dijk's a far better player. I mean, he's got a far higher ceiling and not only that, he's already got the the aspects of a, a central defender that you would want more so than van der Hoorn. So things like that, when you, you find out in later years, other teams were, were considering other players over him, I, I found at the time quite shocking. Um, Looking at Stefan, like I said, he, he had already got to a stage where he was already bossing games. I mean, for me, he he was perfect for our system. He was a hard-working, energetic player who was decent on the ball, who could get ahead of play. But at the time at Strom's concert, he was playing a lot deeper. He was playing as a, as a holding midfielder, whereas when he came to Celtic, he was forever getting into the box. He was almost like a, an attacking eight at times. Um, so it's funny when you put the two side by side, obviously where their careers ended and, and they're not finished yet, but where they, they got to, Virgil's gone to the moon um, and Stefan's still playing to a good level. But um, it's just interesting when you look back at those two because the initial point of view, looking at them side by side, at that time in their careers, Stefan was probably more advanced than, than where Virgil was. When you look at those two players in particular and others that you've been involved in signing over the years for, for Celtic and, of course, now at Columbus as well, how much pride do you take in watching their careers develop and also watching them develop as people? Because you sign Virgil from Groningen. He goes, obviously, to Celtic, then to Southampton. And then, obviously, with Liverpool, you mentioned the fact he's gone to them. And how much pride do you take in that personally? Yeah, listen, it's great when you look back over the years. You, you see, because I, I personally, I, I'm, I, I keep a close eye on every player I've looked at. So I have gigantic databases. When I say gigantic, I'm talking thousands and thousands of players that I would have looked at over the years. And, I, and it's almost kind of um, subsessive on, on my side. Even to this day, I will go back through those databases and I will look at where the players that we were looking at at that time ended up. And I'll take notes and I'll keep notes. Um, so when you see someone like Virgil going to where he went, winning awards, winning Champions Leagues, you think, geez, that's f- more for his point of view. That's that's outstanding. I just feel great for the boy. I mean, I, I look at it and I think to myself, what he put into his career to go from what he was at Groningen to coming to Celtic to enhancing himself there and then Southampton and then realising, listen, I can go higher. That, that's testament to the boy. Um, he, as a person, you can see that the hunger was in him. He was always wanting to be better than he was, no matter what it was. And I think that's why sometimes, maybe at Southampton, people would look at him and say, is he a little bit, is he a little bit um, arrogant or lazy because he's, he's letting people run off him and then recovering? I don't think that was the case. I think a lot of the time he became so comfortable against opponents, he wanted a challenge. So saying to you, listen, I'm going to give you those few yards because I know I'm going to get there. For him was a challenge. It was, can I, can I still do that? Can I still achieve that? Because when I get to the higher level, if I get to play in the Champions League, if I get to play for a Liverpool, a Chelsea, a City, the type of guys running off me are going to be this level of player. So I think it's all testament to him. Um, I, I take more pride in where they get to for themselves rather than, than from, from what I feel personally. Maybe when I'm retired, maybe when I'm an old man looking back, I'll, I'll give myself a pat on the back. But at the moment, I just I just love seeing how far they can get. I always want them to push themselves, and I think in his case specifically, he's he's more than pushed himself. He's he's already gone way 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 above and beyond what anybody would have imagined he could achieve. The question that I'm desperate to ask you, if I, if I'm honest, is 
you, you know as well as I do that for football fans, transfers, recruitment really excite them. There's gossip columns in every newspaper across Europe uh, and in the States. It's something that is talked about in every pub and every household. What would you say is the, are the most challenging aspects of scouting? Is it the transfer window and the time pressures that clubs are under? Is it budgetary constraints? Is it managerial changes? What would you say are the most challenging aspects? Because it's not as easy as football manager or football <laughs> that some people think it is. <laughs> Honestly, the biggest, the biggest challenge is actually getting the deal done. Um, the identification part, that, that's a process. That takes time. You've got a lot of people working in that. There's a lot of people involved in that. Um, then you're dealing with the agents then you're, you're kind of deal with what they're looking for then you've got the club that's selling so you're having to deal with what they're looking for but when you put all of that in one big pot there's so many moving parts at any one time um, that getting the deal done is actually the hardest part I mean even even as, as something as basic as a free transfer a player that might not have a club so you don't have to deal with the club you're still dealing with the, the specifics of the agent of the contract of what the player's looking for does that suit what we want do we want to give that longer term is the player looking for security? Maybe he's looking for three years rather than being comfortable with two years. There's so many moving parts. And for me, 100%, the most challenging part is definitely getting the deal done. I don't find the pressure with the, the transfer window period. Um, the budget, I don't find a pressure with. Managerial changes come with their own headaches because maybe you've been working on a guy for three months or a position for three months and then the new coach doesn't want that. Um, but things like budget and, and transfer window periods, they're, for, for me, they're not pressure because you know what you've got at the start. Those things don't change. You know the, the day the transfer window opens, you know when it ends. You know the budget, you know what you can spend on transfer and salary. They're never the, the, the difficult parts because when you're dealing with the agents and the players, they know from day one what the parameters are. For me, it's definitely getting the deal done, getting all the, all the parties into the right location at the right time to make it actually happen. And I think that's the one thing that perhaps supporters don't understand enough about that when a deal happens, it's not a, it's not a case of Celtic or Columbus need a, need a right back. So who are the best available for that number? Let's go and get it. There's a hundred other things going on behind the scenes. Um, is the, as simple as, is the player's wife okay with the move? Is she happy moving? Does she want to come and live in, in Glasgow or Columbus or wherever that may be? There's so many moving parts. Um, so definitely the, the big thing for me is is getting the deal done. It's not all the, the aspects that go into it. It's the, it's the final part of it. That's the most stressful. In terms of Celtic, last question on that, Neil. Um, a successful period when, when you were there. The club had obviously went on and, and continued success domestically, at least since, uh, since you departed the club, which shows there was definitely progress made in your time there. When you leave Celtic, you were linked with opportunities in England, but you opted for Qatar. Why did you choose to, to go to Qatar at the time? You know, it's, uh, it's I, I tell people this, and, and, and sometimes I, I think they, they think I'm making this up, but I'm genuinely not. At that time, I think I'd been there six years, five, five or six years at Celtic, and, and I just wanted a totally different challenge. Um, I was speaking to teams in England, and, I, and I'd met with a few of them and, and been down and and things were good, you know, from that point of view, it was it would have been a nice move, you know. But looking at it, I'm saying, will it be any different? You know, I'm, I'm once again dealing within the European marketplace. Um, it's in my comfort zone. I know everybody down here. I know the teams. I have the contacts. I have the connections. What would be right outside the box, you know? What would be, be far removed? Um, and at the time, uh, we had actually had uh, our head of sports science, a guy called Kenny McMillan, um, had left Celtic um, just about probably six months before me. 
and he'd gone to Qatar. So he'd gone to, to, to head up working for the Qatari FA and the Aspire Academy. And I was talking to him regularly and, and he was like, you know, I think you like this over here. It's, it's, a, it's a total challenge. Facilities are out of this world. Um, this, is, this is a place where um, it's new. You know, everything's new. You, you can come in, it's a, it's a blank canvas. Come in and, and see what you think of, of a different environment. And I got thinking about it and I thought to myself, listen, this is so far outside my comfort zone. Like it's beyond outside my comfort zone. Um, what could I achieve over there? What, what would it be like to just really down tools from a European side and say, listen, I'm going to go and take that on. A place where English isn't the first language. Um, a place where the, the weather is entirely different. I mean, it's, it's scorching over there. Um, a place where you're going to be working with numerous nationalities. So you're going to be working with guys from all over the world rather than, than a mainly British core of staff, which is, is what I was used to. And I just thought, you know what, what, why don't I look into this at least? So I held a couple of the, the, the meetings in England with, um, with teams down there and, and kind of didn't get back to them. I said, listen, I need some time to think about it. It's a big move. Um, and I, at the same time, was speaking to some of the guys in Qatar. So I had a few, um, a few meetings with them, video meetings, Skype meetings. Um, and, I, and I let them tell me about the project because the project for me was the more interesting part of it. Um, and in the end, I think just speaking with Kenny, um, we also had a, a former doctor Roddy McDonald had moved out to the Middle East. He was over working in, uh, he was in the United Arab Emirates. And those two were guys that I'd respected a lot at Celtic. Um, they were guys I looked at and said, listen, they're super professional guys. If they felt it was good for their career, then maybe this could be good for my career. And in the end, I just, I, I made the decision that Qatar was where I wanted to go. The, the World Cup project obviously had, had a big influence on it. Being able to go over there and work with the national teams and shape what potentially, I say potentially, more than likely is going to be the, the, the players that end up playing in that World Cup when it comes round, because that was how the, the time had been scheduled, that the players we were working with would be of an age for the first team come the World Cup. And the, the whole idea of it, I just thought, when, when am I going to get to work on a project like this again? Um, because it is such a unique project that is happening over in Qatar. And I thought, listen, I'm, I'm going to go for it. And um, I did. Ended up doing three years there and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. In your time there, how would you say the football developed in Qatar? Because there were some key names that arrived from a world football perspective. When you think of Xavi, who is probably one of, if not the most iconic midfield player of the modern era of football, when he arrives in Qatar, I imagine that had a big influence in the game as well. The first thing I'd say about Xavi is, as a human being, what a guy. Like, what a guy. Um, you would look at what he achieved in his career Geez, there's there's few better central midfielders in history than this guy. But what a normal, down-to-earth, basic guy. He would come and sit with us at games. He would come and watch training sessions. He would come and ask questions. He even took part in, in five-a-side and seven-a-side games. Just a totally down-to-earth guy. And and when he came, part of his, part of his uh, contract, I believe, was that he could bring uh, family members. So a lot of his family members came and worked with us as well. Um, his brother was a coach uh, who we worked with closely. Again, just lovely, lovely people. Absolutely no airs and graces about them. They weren't arrogant in any way. They were just totally normal, just like, like me and you. No different, no different, nothing at all. They were happy to just sit in amongst the everyday normal people. Um, and, and I think that was probably one of the big reasons that he has been so successful in, in his career, but also one of the reasons why the Qataris looked at him and said, listen, this guy can be a figurehead for what we're trying to build in 2022. He's obviously still there. He's coaching there um, at Al Sadd, the team that he played for. He's now retired. But 
he was always there at the training sessions. He was always doing his coaching badges. When the national team youth teams played the 17s, the 19s, he would sit on the bench, he would listen. He was just a sponge. He just wanted to know as much as he possibly could um, about the coaching side of the game, which I think if you're a guy like him, realistically, if he wanted to hang up his boots and then go and take a role with Barca, he could have done it. He could have gone and taken a role anywhere. But the fact that he chose to come over, invest himself in a project like the one that's being created in Qatar and then go to the, the ground level, you know, the real nuts and bolts of the game, watching young training sessions, watching youth teams, coaching youth teams, um, I think has just been great on the whole project that's being built there because young players are coming through looking at Xavi coaching them, looking at Xavi on the sidelines, going to watch the local team, Al Sad that he's with, and there's Xavi as, as the coach. So I think what he's done for that country is is phenomenal. Um, he's, listen, financially uh, for for no doubt at all he's been looked after but you could get that anywhere when you're chavy you know you could go to any country china wherever and, and financially be looked after but he's invested himself as a person into the country um and i think it's outstanding and just on your initial question on on, on how did get the the country develop or qatar develop one thing i would say is the the level of facility over there is unbelievable i mean it's the best pitches i've ever seen i've ever played on i've ever walked on uh, the facilities in-house, they have everything for the boys. So the players at national team level would be staying in the, the finest of hotels. They'll be travelling on the finest of airlines. Now, listen, that sends out potentially the wrong message of, of what being a professional footballer is. But when you're a country like Qatar that has pretty much unlimited wealth, they are showing these boys this is what the life of a professional footballer is. So there's two ways of looking at it. One, they're preparing them for what the World Cup's going to be when they play against superstars. And two, they're showing them a slice of what it's like if, if you improve to the point where you can get a move to Europe or South America. Um, and the other part is as well, the the, the facilities there, the Aspire Academy and, and what the Qatari FA use, all the top teams in the world come there for their winter training camps. So regularly, every year, we would have Paris Saint-Germain there, full squad. We would have Zenit. We would have um, Barcelona had been over. It was just non-stop, top, top level clubs coming every single summer. And the great part of that was Bayern Munich would be there every year. You could go and watch their sessions. So you would go and stand literally on the, on the touchline watching Bayern train. You would listen to the coach when he was, Pep was the coach at the time. You'd listen to his instructions. Then you'd watch PSG. So you were seeing Zlatan training and all, all these things. Um, so it, it, it was outstanding um, from that point of view that you could see, you could see just what went into day-to-day uh, elite level clubs and I think that's something that the Qataris want to soak up and take from and they're doing that so um, yes I mean in terms of where the country is now investment facilities uh, it's, it's top top notch Also while you were in Qatar you were consulting teams all over the globe what sort of device are clubs looking for when they consult you or others and is there a particular marketplace that they want to buy from or is it much more open and fluid than that? Yeah, I mean, from a consultancy point of view, um, I quite liked that because I wasn't under any constraints. So clubs would, would that I had relationships with, staff members I had relationships with, would contact me and say, listen, we're in the market for this. We've been looking for the last couple of months. We haven't found exactly what it is we're happy with. Who do you recommend? Who, who would you have out there that you think? Um, and I would, I would take some time out. They would obviously give me parameters and then I would go to them with who I felt from analysing their squad could enhance them. Um, now, thankfully, on, on a few occasions, they actually recruited players that I recommended to them. Um, so from that point of view, you think, listen, I, I, that, that tells me that 
regardless of club, as long as you're aware of what's in the marketplace, how teams play and, and what players suit them, you can still do that job regardless of the club. So, I mean, that part, of it was great. And also dealing with people from, from different um, league backgrounds, different cultures, the football's different. So it's a totally different style of football in Mexico to what you find in France and, and the type of players they're looking for. Um, Brazil, I'll use as an example. When you watch games in Brazil, a lot of the time, it's like, it's just end-to-end, non-stop end-to-end football. The tactical side of it isn't really thought of as much. It's how can we outscore our opponent? Whereas you maybe go and watch a game being played in France um, and it's a 0-0 or a 1-1 because there's a lot more tactical aspect. Italy, for sure, is, is a lot more based on how do we stop the opposition from scoring rather than how, how do we outscore them? So it's just overall, I think it's great to work in different countries, different leagues, different styles of play because it, it helps you as a person understand football more and exactly what makes players tick and what clubs are looking for so I loved that period um, and uh, it was just good to work with so many different nationalities In terms of Qatar you referenced earlier the fact that you absolutely loved your time there now it would have been very easy again this is only my assumption so correct me if I'm wrong it would have been very easy for you Neil at that point to say right I've came out of a comfort zone uh, I've moved to Qatar I've completed three or four years here I've been really happy you could easily have come back to the UK or Europe but you moved to Columbus Cruise we, we, we talked about at the start of the interview what attracted you to the US and Columbus Crew from Qatar? Uh, again it was I mean, I looked at it and I'll be honest, I was I was potentially close to going back into Europe. Um, I had some nice offers that, that appealed to me because they were clubs I'd always wanted to work for. Things were good from that point of view, but I still, I've always had this kind of section in my head where I'm, I, I always ask myself, is it a challenge? Is it a challenge? Do you go to a big club and you're just a resource there and you know what's expected every year or, or can something be built here? Um, and at the time, I'd actually been approached by another team within MLS, um, who I'd met with, um, I'd gone over there and I'd had a look at what the setup was. And at the same time, I was talking with Columbus, but the first team that I'd met with in MLS, I remember coming away thinking, this is not organised. This this club does not have a structure here. They don't know what they want to become. Um, so when I was talking with Columbus, I was getting the total opposite feel. Uh, I actually flew over to Columbus to meet with them. So I sp- spent a week there, um, coaching staff, watched them play, went to training sessions, met with the staff. And I remember thinking, this is a really good place. Like the people here are what are making this a successful organization. Uh, the staff members, the, the internal staff members, the guys that were the day to day stuff. I remember thinking these are just really good people. So from a, from a feel good point of view, Columbus ticked the box straight away. But then as you start looking at, at what they, what they were going through and potentially where it was, they wanted to take the club. You think to yourself, this is a really big challenge. This is something that if you get in at the ground, there's a lot of open space here to build. And that, for me, was the thing that started kind of setting light bulbs off my head and saying, listen, you could get in here to the point where you could build something from the ground up. Looking at the squad, it needs to improve. How does it improve? Where can you get a squad to? Obviously, working directly with the staff that were there. Um, and in time, the new staff that came in, who thankfully were all good people as well. But it was more the feel-good factor that, listen, everybody seems to be going in the right direction here. They're all... They're all wanting the same thing. There's no individuals, there's no egos, there's no arrogance. Um, and, and overall, I just sat down looking at it and thought to myself, you know, this this could be the place that, that we could build something. And not, not only that, Columbus is a great city. Um, I mean, when you uh, if you ever end up coming to Columbus, 
it's just one of those really nice places, you know. There's a lovely downtown area. There's great restaurants. And location-wise, it's brilliant. I mean, you can get on a flight, and within an hour and a half or so, you can be in New York. You can. I actually drove already since I've been there. I drove from Washington, D.C. to Columbus, and that was a great drive. Toronto's um, not that far away on a flight. You can get up to Niagara Falls. I mean, it's just in a, it's, it's slap bang in the middle. It's in a great location, and it just kind of makes you... It makes you feel very connected to the, the city when you're there. Um, obviously, everything that's gone on since, uh, with the team staying in town, with the new ownership, with everything, there's just the icing on the cake. But I think it's just a good place with good people, and it's set for um, it's set for being a place that allows you to work. And I think that, for me, is, is always the most important part when I make decisions. Can I work here? Will I be allowed to work? Um, is everybody pushing in the same direction? Or is their egos, is their arrogance, are there? other people that you wouldn't want to be around on a day-to-day basis and and that's not something I've ever had to worry about in Columbus. Director of Scouting, we've talked about the role on a daily basis, we've talked about the success of the team on the park and and how things are looking up not only for Columbus but for the MLS as a whole in the future. You're clearly enjoying the lifestyle as comes (laughs) across there. This next question, not specifically based on the MLS but there could be examples that you could reference. Based on um, Scottish players, UK-based players moving abroad, you think of young Aaron Hickey, who's just went to Bologna. You think of many young English talents going to the Bundesliga to develop. Do you think there's potential for more UK-based players to make the move to the MLS across Europe than there maybe were 20 years ago when, when players, maybe in the Premier League in England, were a wee bit more reluctant to go out and spread their wings abroad at a young age? Definitely, definitely. I think the only thing that would, would potentially at this stage still be holding them back is the distance. Um, I mean, it's a lot easier if you're an interesting young player in Scotland or Italy to say, listen, I'm going to Germany or I'm going to Italy for a year. To commit to moving to the States, it's, it's, it's quite a big, big commitment. There's a lot of distance. It's not like you can just jump on a flight to get home if, if needed. It takes time. It takes a couple of days. Um, so from that point of view, I think that's probably one of the main reasons that you haven't seen an influx of the young ones coming yet. But if you look at the players that have come to the league, um, and I'm just taking, speaking from a Scottish point of view, guys like Johnny Russell and um, Sam Nicholson, these guys have done well when they've come to the league. Lewis Morgan's down at Miami doing fantastically well. Um, so I think that type of move and that type of player opens the door for, for future players to come. Um, whether or not the best of the best, um, when you're talking young under-21 players in Scotland and England, will see the States as the move right now, I don't know. Um, I think they, they would obviously look to get into their first teams first. And then if not, like you referenced there, Germany, that that to them can be a massively appealing market. You look at someone like Sancho, can't get a game at City, ends up at Dortmund. Now he's one of the world's best players. That's happened a lot. So I think the young players that are in Britain, for example, are saying, listen, where else in Europe can I go? Um, but I wouldn't rule out that they will start in the next few years saying, listen, the MLS is a great opportunity because you come there, it's all over the TV, great facilities, a lot of exposure, do well, one or two seasons, move back. Um, so I, again, I wouldn't rule it out, but I think that it's more likely that the best of the best at the moment, the young U21s are probably going to stay within Europe, a, a short move, one or two hours flight away. 
in terms of yourself, you, you've been successful um, as, as is the whole organisation at Columbus winning the, the conference and of course the MLS Cup. The aim's long term will be to, to replicate that success, which of course is, is, is no easy feat as we know in football. Even even your, your Bayerns, your, your Manchester Cities that struggle at times to, to replicate success year on year, but it's an incredible challenge to be put in front of you. Normally, I finish these interviews, Neil, with quick-fire questions, but for yourself, I'm going to change tact with that because we've talked a lot about your professional roles in football, but let's be honest, you, you just like myself, you're a massive football fan and, and, and you, you work in the game, which is, which is incredible. Do you have a dream of living of your lifetime that you just love watching for whatever reason? Jeez, there's so, so many good players. Um, I've actually, I, I've one of our scouts, um, me and him are, are every day we are we are sending this stuff back and forth to each other because we're always arguing who was the best of living of all time. Um, so it's a difficult one, but phew, I'd go with uh, if we go starting at the keeper, um, Peter Schmeichel, loved him, I absolutely loved him, thought he had everything, um, and he was such a big imposing guy. So he would be my one as a back four. Um, my one of my favourite players of all time, Roberto Carlos, would have to be the left back, no doubt about it. Uh, two central defenders. I loved Alessandro Nesta. Um, he had a few niggling injuries, but I think without that, he would have, he would have been remembered as one of the world's best, even though he is to, to this day. Alongside him, I'd probably put someone like Yap Stam. Um, tank, absolute dominating, dominating player. He's obviously in MLS now as a coach. Um, I hope we keep beating his team, though, right enough. But uh, as a player, a hell of a player. And at right back, I think I'd probably go someone like Zanetti. But a lot of people would say Cafu, but Zanetti for me was a little bit more stylish. More of a more of a kind of team player captain, great engine, never ended with a with the forward runs. Um, so that, that would be my back four. In the middle, I'd probably go four, two, three, one. So in the middle, Chavi's my pick 100 percent Not only because I know him as a person, but also because uh, in terms of ball retention, nobody could get near this guy. Uh, what a player. Technically just unbelievable. Um, and then alongside him, you probably need an enforcer. So I, I go with Patrick Vieira. Um I just loved the way he played, tall, strong, aggressive. But he was a footballer as well. He could score goals. He could he could affect games. Difficult bit is the, the three in front, though. Jeez. Um, huh. I'm going to go Ronaldo, Zidane and Messi. Uh, Zidane, obviously, in the middle, Messi and Ronaldo wide. I'd say that that would be a pretty, pretty difficult front three to, to get anything off. And then for my, my striker, it has to be Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo, who, without the injuries would be, I think, the best, probably the best player of all time. I think he would have eclipsed everyone else. Um, and I got lucky, luckily enough, I met him when I was over in Qatar. Um, it was funny, one of the one of the first few uh, weeks that I was working there, uh, it just seemed to be this this conveyor belt of, of superstars coming through the door. I remember my desk was in the corner of, of the, the kind of upstairs section. And I think in the space of two weeks, I'd, I'd met Puyol, Ronaldo, Roberto Carlos, Figo, um, they just kept coming day in day out so um, he, he's probably one of my favourite players of all time so definitely Ronaldo is my nine uh, I think that'd be a difficult team to beat it certainly would be and what a team it is as well <laughs> just to put you under that last wee bit of pressure in your lifetime there's been so many quality coaches over the years when you consider the, the mix of that team is there a particular coach or manager that you think would, would manage them very well? I'm. Uh, I don't know if this will be everybody's cup of tea, but I'm a massive fan of Jose Mourinho. Massive fan of him. Um, obviously, he had he had so much success in the early days, Porto, and then going to Chelsea, and 
And then obviously you're looking at Madrid and and he's now coming. The second period in England hasn't been as good, even though he won the league at Chelsea again. The, the Uniteds and the Spurs haven't been great yet, but I just think the guy's a genius. Um, his football might not be for everybody, his style of play might not be for everybody, but a guy like that, I think not only could manage a, a team of that ilk, he could probably get uh, above and beyond what they were capable of out of them. So, yeah, for me, Mourinho. Brilliant, Neil. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I wish you every success personally and uh, Columbus Crew as well. And and I must say, I'm jealous of the fact that you're in the States well, it's, it's, it's pretty grim weather back here in the UK. But thanks so <laughs> much me, for your time. <laughs> Appreciate it, Callum. All the best. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song